Hi, I'm Andy Ellis. I'm the host of this show and a potential Green Party candidate for governor of Maryland in 2026. I'm using this show to highlight interesting people and ideas that help me and you to understand what is happening and what is possible. You can learn more about the campaign by going to gogreen2026.com. Guests on this show do not necessarily support my campaign or the Green Party. They've agreed to come on to discuss ideas and issues. And of course, click the subscribe button on YouTube so you can keep up to date with this podcast. Renee Johnston has been an educator and a union member for over two decades. She currently serves as a committee chair of the Global Pan-African Movement, North America, and the Green Party of New Jersey, for which she is a registered member. Renee can be found on Black Power Media on the I Mix What I Like show, Saturdays with Renee. She is also a new member of the Black Alliance for Peace. She's a rabbit hole researcher, a political education event organizer, and a budding writer. Hello, and welcome to the Go Green 2026 podcast. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be talking about cop cities and reimagining public safety. The concept of public safety has been thrust into the national discussion, at least in the last year, as private, public, and nonprofit forces have lined up to build a massive police training facility in Atlanta. The community opposition to this project and the length that elected Democrats and Republicans will go in order to repress and crush the movement against this police facility has once again shown the way both parties are invested in policing as their main mechanism to to envision uh, public safety, protect property, and, and stop protest. Here in Maryland, Democratic Governor Wes Moore is offering an all-of-the-above approach to public safety, which seeks to hire and train more police, lock up more so-called violent criminals, including children, and to use a public health approach to preventing gun violence. We've done previous shows focused on the tough-on-crime and public health approaches to gun violence aspects of his strategy, and tonight we're taking on the train-more-police aspects of the Democratic uh, governor's strategy. I'm excited for this conversation. I'm looking forward to deep, digging deep into this aspect of that of that uh, Democrat and Republican policy on policing. And with that, let's bring Renee in and get to it. Hey, Renee, how are you doing? Hey, Andy, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, it's been a busy week, and I've been <laughs> I've really been looking forward to this conversation and then the one that we're going to have on Saturday. I'm look, very much looking forward to it. Yes, yes. Excellent. Well, let's get right in because I know you got to you got to stop and we uh, in a in a little over an hour and we got some a lot of questions to get through. So um, you've been doing a lot of research about cop cities, and before we dive into the details and go down those rabbit holes that we both like to go down, um, w- can you talk about what the co- what a cop city about that research that you've done and what it means for democracy to have all these cop cities? And can you give us an introduction about how you got into that work? Um. So, I mean, getting into it, it was pure nosiness, right? (laughs) I like to try to get people to understand I'm not really a researcher, right? I work in a high school. I am. But if I find something that I think is interesting that I can't figure out why there's no answer to, I tend to start digging in until I can figure out if I can find an answer to that question. And this cop city question is is one that I feel like, and I still don't know all the answers, but it was enough of a question of trying to figure out how many of these things are actually happening right now, that it was worth me taking the time to kind of comb through all the information that I could find to see what I could pull together. 
Now, I'll ad admittedly the term cop cities, I think, you know, for some of the places that I found it's not, it's overstated, right? It's not actually a cop city, right? It's not a huge facility where it's taken over, you know, a landmass and, and all those things. Now, some of them are, but not all of them are. But what I found is this, this consistency of our police need this new place, be it a new place to surveil, be it a new place to shoot their guns, be it a new place to sit around and eat donuts because, you know, they need a brand new uh, <laughs> department building, whatever it was. Um, and it all went on the list because in my mind, no matter how small the space was or how little, if you can consider, you know, like $8 million little, um, the facility was, it was still a sort a resource. It was still money. It was still time. It was still bids. It was still energy put towards funding the police state. And for me, I always see anything that goes into funding the police state as antithetical to community, right? Like it, it doesn't, they want to sell everybody on this idea that we need to have, you know, every resource we can have for our police departments, for our police officers and all these things. And the thing that would most actually help public safety would be to provide actual resources to the community and not to your police department and your police officers and your armed agents of the state. Um, so because of that, I did include every facility or project that I found, be it a small project that was, it's a brand new police department and therefore they have to tear up ground and build a brand new police department building if it was a shared public safety facility where both the police and the firefighters were gonna be using the same space to train, no matter what, if it was an expansion of a building that already existed, like no matter what the, the reason behind this building was happening, I put it on the list. The only caveat that I did make was it had to be opened or planned to be opened after 2020. So that was my like line in the sand of when I started searching. So I did find about five facilities that based on what I read and then the note that I found from city council notes or whatever have you, it appeared the planning started before 2020, but if it's still currently under construction or it didn't open its doors until 2021 or 2022, I really had a hard time convincing myself that my timeline of 2020 didn't have some kind of effect on that particular project. So I went ahead and added it. And the differential, if you look at the map, is that those five locations, the map is blue. The the flag on the map is blue, where all the other ones are black. So that, you know, I could make sure that I was clear in, in my analysis for what, you know, how I identified different locations. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And it's like 2020, I think, was a really interesting year. It came. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, the moment that it started. It came at the at the end of a, a year of ser a series of years of protest uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, um, and but I think that the Democrats in 2020 took this approach, which was trying to appease the part of their base that wanted to defund the police and appease the part of their base that wanted to have more police. And so they came up with this sort of like um, 
three-part uh, three part approach to it, which is lock up violent criminals, come up with nonprofit alternatives for other folks, and train more cops. Uh, and and this this part of the training more cops aspect of it is really interesting because that's where a lot of the money goes, uh, especially if we're talking about these big capital projects. And, and I want to get into what you found about some of the research in a moment. But um, before that, um, with one part of the framework we use on this show and in this campaign to ally, analyze policy is a, is a rooting in history to understand why the confrontation we have with the now is the confrontation we have with the now. Uh, and, and so um, let's ground this discussion in history. Can you let us know the history of policing that informs your analysis um, to the degree that it helps to put a spotlight on this project? And I know we could do a whole show just on this, but um, oh you know, to, to get the conversation started here, what's the history of policing that um, helps you to locate what is happening right now? Um, Right. So, um, so the history, the reality of the creation of police forces is they were not created to serve and protect the community and the members of the community from any kind of harm. It had nothing to do with public safety. And um, I speak a lot about, you know, the, the slave catchers, because that was a huge part of the initial um, police forces down in the South. They were set up to scare slaves, to stop them from gathering, to catch slaves. They chased people down to different areas of the country to drag them back to their slave owners. Um, in addition to that, there were also police forces that were started to stop um, working people from unionizing. In London, the police force was created to protect the rich manners and to make sure that, you know, the peons didn't get on, steal anything or, or get onto property where they weren't supposed to be. Um, but because of the trajectory of policing, which has continued really to focus so heavily on black and brown bodies, it's really hard to separate it fully from the slave catching aspect. And a lot of people speak on that as the history, and it is a huge part of the history of policing. But I always like to make sure I, you know, note now, and it's it's funny, we, you know, I'm doing these monthly abolition um, workshop groups with a group of other organizers in New Jersey, and we just did this topic. And one of the part of the presentation was the history of policing. Thank you, Annalise. And so, you know, one of the things we talked about is how grossly misunderstood what policing is, is right to the, the broader population. There's so much propaganda, there's so many movies, there's so many TV shows, and everything is to, to present this idea that, you know, policing at its core is about like serving and protecting and taking care of your neighbor and making sure everybody's safe. And it literally, the history of it has nothing to do with that. The history of policing has always been at its core to protect property and to protect the owners of that property. It is literally that simple. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of this that is sort of the mundane way that black and brown communities are un are not safe and over-policed at the same time, the sort of everyday aspect of it. Right. But there's also the sort of spectacular aspect of it when there's an uprising or an insurgency in an urban area and the police are called in to shut that down. Can you talk a little bit about the way um, about the history of policing and suppressing uprisings, insurgencies, and radical political movements uh, in Black and Brown communities. You know, we could, we're in Baltimore, so we had a 
um, a most recent uprising in 2015. Right. I know, after you Freddie know, Gray was murdered. Mm -hmm. yep, after Freddie Gray was murdered and, you know, in the Newark had a had a big uh, insurrection and uprising in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And and much of it seems like much of modern policing in urban areas is doing the two aspects. It is the sort of mundane, everyday um Harassment. Every day, over policing <laughs> and harassment of people just going about their day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and then the sort of when there is a when there is a moment of of political action or popular resistance, they're there to crush that. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, it all falls. It it's all part of the same problem, right? So, if you decide as a, a community that you're going to get together. And you're going to stand up to the, you know, in the face of these armed agents of the state to represent the contradiction that they are, to call out the falseness of their role, to call out the fact that it's not one bad apple, it's an entire rotten ground tree, you know, everything, right? Um, their job is to prevent you from presenting that side of things right it doesn't help the police propaganda if an entire community comes forward and says you there are too many of you you're all armed all you do is harass us then you kill us and then you get mad of a, at us for coming out and saying these are the things that you're doing right so it's all part of silencing any attempt to move to move the idea forward that what we believe about policing is not the reality of policing because they have to maintain their propaganda. It is absolutely important that any attempt to present that truth does not get far. So they don't want large mass protests, right? They don't want communities to actually end up on mainstream media where someone who can speak logically and, and tell a full story about what's happening can actually tell it. You know, they want that they want the headlines that the newspaper is going to give that, you know, man was shot knife found. Right. <laughs> but we're not going to talk about the fact that he was shot in the kitchen and who doesn't have a knife in the kitchen. Right. So these are these are the things that that they can avoid if they can crush any ability for people to truly gather and have those conversations. And it's also it's also, you know, part of really making sure that there is no radical ideology that moves forward in a community, right? So if you even go back to, you know, any, and you can pick one out of the air, right? Of a voice of someone who was speaking against the state and trying to give an honest analysis of what people are actually trying to survive and trying to live with. And the end result is that person probably was taken out by the state specifically because their role is to make sure that we all remain under their control and without the ability to work together to actually push and fight and gain control over our own safety. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting that coming out of 2020, the sort of liberal response was to recognize the excesses of policing, at least in words, um, and to say what we need to do is to better train police, and thus we need to build these facilities to better train them. But the reality is those facilities are also training them to do the kind of urban combat that we saw in 2020, where they are um, aggressively and violently repressing nonviolent protest. And, and, you know, it is, um, 
I mean, it's a good marketing gimmick in some ways. This we need to train police better. It is a good marketing uh, gimmick by Democrats and by liberal folks to actually funnel money toward the violent repression uh, under a different name. And I think that starts to get into some of the research that you did on on cop cities. And I'm, you know, so um, we watched this National Lawyer, Lawyers Guild webinar that you did a couple of weeks ago, and it was excellent. Uh, and we'll definitely link it in the in the comments here. Um, but can we start with this about how, to, uh, as we dive into your research, how did you define cop cities in your research and what is included? You talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but let's just understand the methodology um, of inclusion and exclusion as we start to dive into this. Right. So the full, you know, the full list of um, when I pulled up, okay, which ones exactly, like what exactly am I going to put on this list as I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, how am I defining this? And it was any facility that I found where there were plans that I could definitively outline to build, if there were plans to attempt to build, if construction had begun, or if the facility was open, and it was anything in any state, I went alphabetically and it included if that was still in the assessment phase, if it was in the planning phase, if it had been approved for construction, if construction was ongoing, again, if it had been opened, or if it was a renovation or an expansion of a, a training facility, an academy, a police department, I included everything and you know, as I was telling you before, the reason for that is because any of those things, when you read through the documents, right, it takes up space, it takes up money, <laughs> and it takes up a resource that could be used for something else. So I felt like I didn't want to leave anything out, right? And and I've gotten some pushback from people, you know, like, oh, this place in Maine, this is ridiculous that you added this. They were just, you know, they were just renovating their police department. This doesn't need to be on there. And so my pushback is, okay, that's what you say. But Ellsworth, Maine has like 8,500 people who live there. So why do they need an 8,500 square foot police department? <laughs> Right? And why are they spending millions of dollars to renovate a space like that in Maine? Like, why? You, you mean to tell me there's nothing better that the people in that area could have gained with those millions of dollars that they put towards this process? And so I, I didn't want to leave any place out. And I tried my best, you know, and when you read the write-up of the methodology to really lay that out so people understand as we all know, a lot of people just look at stuff. They don't really read, <laughs> read the things, right? So, right. I, you know, it's laid out, but I don't, I don't think, you know, I think people kind of dismiss the fact that I tried to be very, very clear in, in what is on the map um, so that they understood that it did encompass all of these things. And that was intentional. Right. And it's not like, I, I can't imagine that every school in Ellsworth, Maine, every park every uh, other public system is doing great and they just had a bunch of money to get rid of and they decided that the last thing they were going to do was to renovate the police station <laughs> right, right? That, was the la that was the last <laughs> thing that was missing and you know we just got to do it and we got to find this four million dollars to make sure it gets done right like that's not a small amount of money right? right i mean how old are your books 
Right. When's like, the last it, time the air conditioning in the school was updated? Like, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And and like, you know, were, were all of the residents so eager to give up their money uh, that they that they had to spend this last one thing on getting the, right. you know, it, it's right. just, I, I think including everything there is really useful because it actually allows these debates to occur. It allows the it allows the question to occur about investing in police training at places where it is not Nashville or Atlanta or Newark or Baltimore, but it is instead the day to day investment in maintaining this structure. And I think that's as important to include. So um, it, it, aside from a small police station in Maine that is still worth talking about. Um, <laughs> What did you find? How many of these are around the country and wh which ones were most notable to you? So I found a total of 69. Um, and, you know, when I created the map, it was really me understanding that for a lot of people sitting down and looking at a really long spreadsheet of links and words and numbers was just going to be too much, right? So I created, I created the map literally so there would be this visual. I don't think I quite understood how jarring it was going to be as a visual until I finished it, right? Once I had like double checked the last link <laughs> to make sure and I kind of sat back and said, okay, I'm done. And then I stopped for a second and I looked at it and I was like, holy, like, wait a minute, <laughs> right? They're literally everywhere except for three states um so there's 69 projects that i found as i said earlier there were five of um those 69 that you know per what the information that i was able to uncover were, were projects that quasi started before 2020. um i do think there's probably more of those projects where there were inklings and nudgings that they were going to try and do something prior to 2020 but i'm 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 fairly confident that if it's under construction now or if the bond was solidified in 2021, that, you know, what happened in 2020 played a role in it. Um, the most expensive project is, I think it's $415 million that's down in Nashville. It's an 800 acre facility that they're looking to, uh, <laughs> to build up. Another really big one is in Hershey, Pennsylvania. That's a 366,000 square foot facility. Um, everyone, I think at this point is familiar with Atlanta and what's going on there. Um, uh, Baltimore, as I know you know, has this plan for Coppin State. That's a $330 million project. Newark has a $300 million project with uh, four buildings that they're trying to put up the first ones already under construction. Um, so it, it's a lot and it's a lot of money. Um, for some projects, the money was, I couldn't find it. Now, again, it could be because I'm not a researcher and I wasn't really sure like where exactly to look. It could be that it was hidden really well and that's why it couldn't be found. There are a couple of places that are, um, there's one place that's actually a private facility um, so I'm not likely, I mean, maybe somebody else can try and find it, but I'm, there's, there's, it's probably completely not going to happen that you'd be able to track down where the money came from for this, but it is positioned as a training facility for police and military. So mm -hmm. even if it's private, you have to 
you have to put it on there because this, you know, this private training is a massive part of the problem um, outside of, you know, what policing is <laughs> to begin with. But um, in Chicago, um, the facility that was put up is a national de-escalation program, which, you know, as we know, that's worked really well. And de-escalation by police is like commonplace. Um, so, you know, but it was, um, it, it was, it, it, in the end, it was jarring. It really, like, even for me who had been doing it, right? Like I started out, I had like a, a couple of dozen that convinced me that I needed to look in every state. When I got invited to do the National Lawyers Guild, I went back to confirm the 47 that I found on the initial spreadsheet and then ended up with 68, 67. And then I got a link to an article about Lacey Washington. I didn't even know Lacey Washington was a thing. Now I found the four regional police training facilities they were planning to open. But I didn't know Lacey Washington was part of the plan. So then you have to add Lacey Washington. Now you're at 68. And while I'm doing that, I catch wind that they're fighting in Philadelphia because they want to, you know, build another facility in downtown Philadelphia, even though they just built a brand new police department, I think in like 2019. Right. So it's um, it's a lot. Did you um, were you able to get a, a total of how much money is on the table so you know i did not do the math on that and i, I probably should have but it's it's in the billions easily. yeah and it, i mean it, it's fascinating that in response to um widespread movements against policing and a global insurrection um after george floyd's murder the response of Democrats and Republicans alike is to to expand police budgets by billions of dollars by investing in these training facilities. And you know, I I often will say in Maryland, there's there's two things that uh there's two things that have bipartisan support in Maryland, and that is unlimited support for Israel and unlimited support for the police. Uh, and these are sort of the two areas where Democrats and Republicans are in lockstep. Uh, and in convergence, and, and if you think about it, they're not really two separate areas, right? They're, so, you know. they're, they're very interconnected. And that was a question I was going to ask too about future possibilities of this is, have you thought about the way or looked into the way that some of these same people who are commissioning these centers are going to turn their eyes globally and start building these centers in places that are, you know, um, very dependent on the US? Um. You know, it's an interesting question. I don't know if they need to. I mean, we got how many, what is it, 800 and something military bases all over the world? I don't know that you need. I, I think, honestly, that the U.S. is actually more looking like a military installment versus what the U.S. is doing internally being a blueprint for what it's going to do internationally. It's already trying to police the world. Yep. And it's doing so by putting up military bases all over the all over the world, surrounding areas that it finds to be troublesome and making sure that they don't really give full information about why we need to have it there. So similarly, you look around, you look on the map, Minneapolis is surrounded, right? You have certain, you know, the East Coast is completely bombarded. <laughs> um, you know, you have 
multiple projects going in different different places and you know I didn't dig super deep into it because I'll be honest this was an overwhelming project for someone who's not a researcher right um but as I was going I was having you know making my mental notes like you know how close are these things to the black people and the brown mm-hmm. people and the indigenous people right mm-hmm. um how many of them are also going to serve the military because for some it was very clear like this is going to be dual police and military you know don't know that just because it didn't say it it won't be right um how many of these places are going to participate in these international trainings because that's a huge part of of funding right like police departments request federal funding so they can send their officers to go train in israel for two weeks with the gilly program right so it you know i i really actually think it's the other way around i, mm-hmm. I really yeah. think it's you know it's not a plan for what we're going to do it's bringing what we've been doing back home yeah no i think that's a really good point and then i remember back um 2007 2008 Dylan Rodriguez wrote an article about the way that prisons were one of the things the U.S. was exporting to Afghanistan at the time. So as the U.S. was trying to remake Afghanistan in its image, it was investing a bunch of money to invest in police stations and prisons in Afghanistan. Not that there weren't prisons there already, um, but that they were making them like U.S. prisons and that they were bringing in private consulting groups in order to do that. And it was part of the folks who were contractors. Same thing happened in Iraq and Dolan Rodriguez is telling of it. And it's just an interesting thought about like when the United States decides to destroy and then rebuild another country, one of the things that comes with it is its police and its prisons because mm-hmm. that's how they regulate, that's how they ensure the free flows of capital and suppress right. the resistance. Yeah, it, it, I'll send you that. I think it's interesting. And Yeah, and I will, I'd like to read that, yeah. And I will say, I'm a person that loves the spreadsheet. Um, so <laughs> I will do, dive into your spreadsheet, but we will share the map and the spreadsheet and the comments of this so everybody can check out whether they like the map or the spreadsheet better. They can check out your research. <laughs> I should do a poll. Which did you prefer, the, <laughs> the map or the spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah, I am, I am voting for the spreadsheet any day, but uh, yeah, it's I understand. A, it's a lot. It's a lot yeah. to look at. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but it's really useful. When I looked at it, I thought it was a really, really valuable tool, really valuable um, piece of political education to help people understand what's going on with this and um, the degree to which that investment has occurred since 2020. I think that's the important part of it is the time-boundness of it makes it so extraordinary. And um, I think about this in terms of like when the We Charge Genocide petition was authored in 1951, mm-hmm. I think they only used things that had happened since the Genocide Convention had had, had occurred. Right. And I think those type of tools that say, we're going to take a time from the very recent past and chart what has happened since then, have a really powerful illuminating ability because I think people can say, yeah, it's always been this way or yeah, such and such or it's getting better now. But what your research shows is not getting better. It's getting way worse. The response to 2020 was to invest massively in police buildings, capital facilities, and training facilities to make sure that they have a permanent presence in communities that is never going away. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And I want to talk about, we talked a little bit about the, um, you mentioned the Baltimore facility. And so I want to use that facility um, to contextualize some of this locally and then give a chance for you to explain what you found around projects around the nation that relate to it. So um, a report came out last year that said, um, that outlined plans for a $330 million public safety training facility on the campus of Coppin State University, which is a historically black college and university in West Baltimore. And one thing that I found really interesting was the recommendations about funding in this, because the study identifies a few sources of potential funding um, for the $330 million. That's a lot of money uh, mm -hmm. that this costs. Um, and they fall into three basic categories public monies, nonprofit and foundation funding, and private and corporate funding. So what I want to do is sort of go through each of these funding sources and talk about what your research found, um, what it means, and what it concerned, and the concerns you have about it. So let's start with the public money. They outline a whole bunch of sort of um, different grants from levels of government and even suggest an income tax that could be increased in order to um, to fund this act or to fund this facility. What did you find about the public funds for these things, where they're coming from, and um, you know what the trend there is? Um, so anything that that was built, I if I remember correctly, did did get some kind of public funding, right? Um, and it was either they got money from the state, they got money from the federal government, often through those um, COVID um, relief bills, um, or it was a bond that the, the town had to vote on, or sometimes the town said no, and they said, okay, we'll find the money from somewhere else. Um, but typically, you know, it's not even necessarily an increase of taxes, but looking towards the monies that already come and flow into that particular district or city or or whatever have you via um, the local community, the state or the federal government providing those funds to be used for that purpose. So that was a pretty steady through line, um, unless I couldn't find the money at all, <laughs> which which did happen for a couple of things. I just couldn't, I couldn't find it. So I'll send you the page for the, I'll send you the appendix from the Baltimore report about the funding. Cause it's fascinating. <laughs> it is them telling on themselves in all sorts of ways. I, I, I believe it. It, it sort of says things like we're going to need to use massive amounts of public funding for this. And the community like in Atlanta is going to oppose us doing that. So we are going to need to get the political capital together in order to convince the politicians in the community that this is a good investment for them, you know, and it is like they know. <laughs> right. And um, but yeah, I'll send it to you. It's fascinating. It is. Um, yeah. It. Yeah. it it, and it references Atlanta and it sort of says Atlanta has a comparable project to the one that we're trying to build in Baltimore and it's um, and they got the funding together for it. But then the people got mad and now it's in trouble. And it is right. like, well, that's one way of telling that story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. But... And the, the bonds, <laughs> excuse me, the bonds are something that I found in a lot of places where, you know, we'll just. We'll just do a tax, you know, we'll just do a bond <laughs> and we'll take, we'll use a bond and, you know, and I wonder often, do people understand like when they, when they do these bonds, like it's a debt, right? right. Like it's not, 
it's not it's not free money like it has to it has to come come back like it has to go back eventually no matter you know what they're using to fund the bond um so that's been there's been an, i don't i don't fully fully understand the bond process like how it works i just know it's not free money and it's got to be paid back eventually and so you know someone's going to have to pay that money back and i think it's interesting that they reference Atlanta, which I knew they did, um, um, because the Atlanta project started out and it was supposed to be only like a third of it was going to be paid for by the citizens, right? Only, you know, it wasn't going to be a ton of, it was all, you know, it's almost all going to be private money. Don't worry about it. You only have to put in like $30 million. And then when it turned out at the end, I think now that the, the bill for the, the taxpayers is up to like 70 million. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's completely flipped from what they they initially said. And it's because they couldn't raise enough money. Um, <laughs> they couldn't have they didn't have enough private donors to to give money to to pay for this facility. So it's uh, it's an interesting. It's just it's very interesting how these things all work. And I think what I most what most stood out to me about the money is I listen to how often politicians tell people, well, we can't pay for that, mm -hmm. right? Like we can't, we can't excuse student debt. Like who's, people have to pay for that. Like we can't give everybody medical care. <laughs> you have to pay for that. We can't raise wages. Like who's paying for that? But they always find money to pay for the dumb shit, right? <laughs> like it's like, sorry, part of my language, but like they, they can find it to pay for this. Right. This we can't day. pay for that because we're paying for this. Right. And right. and one of the conversations that I'm I'm really starting to encourage is even if you live in a place where you've discovered now that they just built this thing or they broke ground and they're building this thing. Even your worst case scenario is you can't stop it, but now you have a price point. Right. <laughs> right? Now you know that you're whoever found this amount of money to do this thing. So that means they can find this amount of money to do something that's going to be useful to the community. And that's what people should be. There's always a reason to fight back. And that's going to be the reason. No matter where the project is, you have that that you can fight about. Yeah. And, you know, when when the Baltimore report, uh, I will say this about the three hundred and thirty million dollar price tag on the Baltimore report, even the people that most wanted it. So the price, like even the electeds who were most excited for this to happen. So the price tag and we're like, ooh, right. That's I mean, a that's lot of an money. absurd amount of money <laughs> yeah. to give people a place to play and sit around and watch other people do things and harass people. Yeah. Right. That's a lot of money. And that doesn't include you still have to pay salaries. Right. right. <laughs> like, and, and it's I mean, absurd. In, in Maryland, the idea is that having a better. So our police department in Baltimore constantly talks about how many um, empty slots they have and how understaffed they are. And so the training facility is part of getting them back up to the staff that they said that they want to be. So one of the reasons is if we have this nice training facility, more people will want to be cops and we'll have to spend, you know, and it is like, again, taking more and more of the money and allocating it to the police budget. And, you know, it's when Governor Moore talks about this, 
he, he's talking about it as a means of filling shortages in public safety and um, in, in public safety staffing. And what, he, what that means is paying more money for more police to um, under to under safety neighborhoods and over police them. And, you know, and it is and again, I think this is the Trojan horse of Democrats used to be able to talk about uh, giving more money to police budgets is talking about training. Training is their method of figuring out how to allocate those funds because they know that half of their base um, doesn't want those funds allocated to aggressive policing anymore. So the means of ensuring those billions of dollars in the budget are becoming training instead of boots on the ground. Right. Right. And it's all, it's all smoke and mirrors, right? right. When all is said and done, because you build up this thing, even if, even if training was like a valid excuse, right? Let's pretend we live in a world where police actually like serve the purpose they're supposed to serve, which is to like keep people safe, right? Um, you build up this brand new facility, you're gonna now, now, now it's the building that's gonna bring people in when you actually could have used that money to train more social workers more counselors, more nurses, more EMT services. Like you could have used all of that and and provided services that would have been more sufficient even if you were doing actual training that was supporting right. a police, you know what I mean? Like or you could invest in grassroots community-led anti-violence initiatives, you know, like there's a lot of you could put the money into a pool that the community has sovereignty and democratic control over in order to find the violence prevention techniques that they know work. You right. could do that work best. Correct. You could do any number of things um, other than building a fancy new building um, that, you know, it, and, and no matter whether it is in Maine or in Baltimore, the idea that the building, the idea is always the same. The building the fancy building will mean more people want to be police. And somehow it often says, and better people will want to be police if the building is nice. And it is like, look, the, the barrier to the people who you call better people being police is policing, not, right. <laughs> not the building. It's the job. <laughs> it's um, the job. So it, 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 staying on money for a second. One of the things that you talk about is the nonprofit and the foundation funding and the corporate and the private donations that go into that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that part of it, when you just said that like Atlanta was originally supposed to only be a third of it paid for with public money, um, mm -hmm. I think that part should raise people's concern quite a bit that right. corporations, nonprofits, foundations are all sort of working together um, to fund these things. Can you talk about that part a little bit? So it's, it's dual, right? Like there again, it, it one confirms what we talked about earlier that this this police project this arm agent of the state project is really about protecting capital and protecting product um, um, property and protecting those who have ownership <laughs> of capital and property and so it is to their benefit to spend money to uplift and support the thing that's in place to do that Right. So they would be the people who are most likely to support these types of projects. At the same time, they want profit. 
So the minute they, you know, for, for all that Atlanta wants to pretend, the Atlanta government wants to pretend like everybody wants this thing, they couldn't even they couldn't even continue to convince the people who were slotted to pay for it that it was a good investment, right? Like when when it all came down to it, people were like, yeah, I don't know that this is a good place to put my money, (laughs) right? Like that's literally what happened. So the people who they were about to depend on to fund this thing that was so necessary, right? We're like, yeah, this ain't that great of an investment. And instead of recognizing that not even the people you think really want it are willing to invest in it, they decided they were just going to take it out on the people who already can't afford it, mm-hmm. right? To make up for the difference for these people who are all these billionaire you know, million billion dollar companies that don't even exist because of the people in Atlanta. <laughs> it is the bizarrest, like spider web of nonsense that you could possibly put together. And I would not be shocked to discover that this is a lot of places, you know, um, there these police associations and private foundations that support policing. And, you know, they've got hands in a lot of these, if not all of them. I just didn't have the time to fully research that. Um, but I found evidence of enough of it, you know, enough sheriff's departments and sheriff associations and police academy support networks and this, that, and the other thing to know that that's, that's going to be one of the culprits at hand. And it's always going to be the people who already have money who want to make sure that they support this project of the state to protect their money, who are gonna support these projects. And you'll have communities who go along, right? And it's not not every community that people come up and say, oh, we don't want this thing. People voted on the bonds and said, yeah, we, you know, we support our officers and blah, blah, blah. But they all think policing is about what they see on TV but they already live in communities with resources, right? So they're not the overly police. They're standing on every corner and harassing your kid when they're walking home and throwing people to the ground for no reason and pulling people over for stupid things. Like they don't live in those communities, Mm -hmm. right? So to them, you know, they love their police officers, right? I live in a suburb. They love the they love them cops here. They do, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they don't bother me, but you know, my name's on the tax letter. <laughs> so I don't you know, I don't expect them to bother me too much. But that doesn't mean that I don't recognize that that is me as someone who lives in this community. It is very different for someone who is driving through this community. And I'm fully aware of that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting because I think like one of the things that the Baltimore report says about this is like we need to work with national groups or we need to work with local corporate interests and foundations, but also regional and national groups in order to coordinate the political and financial backing for this, um, because projects like this receive a lot of scrutiny. Um, and they sort of say, and, th- and th- this gets to my next question, they sort of say we need to be able to get the community where the policing is going to occur 
to support it by identifying these other folks as outside agitators, basically. Right. Um, and so in, in some of the in some of the reporting on the Coppin facility, again, West Baltimore, historically black college and university campus looking to host this facility. And uh, the proponents and some even in the community say, you know, the police and fire need a new facility and Coppin State wants to cooperate. It's jobs for the community. Mm -hmm. um, the oh, police that's, should... another, that's always another one, the jobs. <laughs> yeah. And they say, you know, the police should train in the places where they're going to work so they can get to know the community. And, um, and they kind of say, don't worry. Train... That... Wait, 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 wait. They should train, listen to that language. They yeah. should train in the place where they work so they can get to know the community. As if the community of Baltimore is getting together and hanging out right. in this facility. <laughs> Lord, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I think that's the thing. And I, so I think what I'm getting at here is I think Black Democratic politicians uh, that are working to try to get these facilities built are using a narrative that sort of says the only people who oppose this are, you know, people who don't live in this community and don't deal with the safety questions that we deal with. Mm -hmm. um, and they are just, you know, outside agitators and people here know they need the police uh, and things like that. And I think they're learning the lesson from Atlanta which is that when the community, uh, when, when you know, a diverse group of folks are united against this project, it's easy to shut one of these projects down. So they're trying to do this right. division thing, which um, is the new tactic for them uh, in order to be able to say, the people in West Baltimore want more policing. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, we, we, I, think that, I think that that's a difficult question because I think that there's a desire and my experience in Baltimore is that, yeah, people want their neighborhood to be safe um, and they don't want um, they don't want to not be able to walk to the store and they don't want to not be able to go outside. And some of the you know, and, and there's a real unsafety that occurs um, in some of these in, in a lot of communities. And, and I think there's people in those communities who want their neighborhood to be safer. And the only alternatives that's given to them are either more police or no police, um, and, and and no police sounds scary to them. Right. And so right. talk a little bit about like how to sort of deal with that turn where they're trying to get, um, you know, the, the complexities of the ground of a place like West Baltimore, where a lot of people um, oppose the over-policing and over oppose the bad policy, um, but the politicians are trying to say, if we just train the police better, um, then they'll be then your neighborhood will be safer and the bad stuff won't happen. Right. So, I mean, what you said is actually the key, right? People don't necessarily want police. They want to be safe, but they have been conditioned to believe that police means safety. Right. So you know, when people had, when you have this conversation, when I had, and I really had to learn how to, how to do this reasonably, right? Um, because it is, it's a much harder conversation because you have to convince people first that the police are not creating safety in your community, right? So if, you're having this conversation with someone who lives in a West Baltimore or in a Philadelphia or in Flatbush in Brooklyn or, you know, wherever, right? 
um, you have to remind people that you are already over-policed and you're still feeling unsafe every single day. And that should be the critical understanding for people to realize that there is no correlation between a really huge over-policed neighborhood and a safe neighborhood, right? Because the safest neighborhoods are not over-policed, they're over-resourced, mm-hmm. right? So you you don't need to have this vast majority of people doing things to survive that may create an unsafe environment and situation for the people who also live in that community. So I think, and I think this is a major problem and I gotta, you know, I have to credit Haidem Rivera because he was on BPM and he was having a conversation. I think he was on Dr. Ball's show and he said, you know, like people don't want to hear like take away the cops when they're afraid of getting carjacked right? Afraid of getting robbed, afraid of whatever things can happen in a community where there aren't enough resources, right? Because they think like, okay, the police that, that they're there to make sure that these things don't happen. The unfortunate reality of this situation is those people, and, and this is most people, whether you live in a safe community or not, most people do not understand that police rarely prevent crimes from happening. You call the police when a crime has happened, right? You dial 911 because you think a crime is happening. By the time they get there, it's done, right? So this idea of safety that people think that they're gathering from these armed officers of the state It is a perception of safety. It is not safety. And what we really have to work to do is break that perception, is to get people to understand that, you know, really historically and any report that has looked into whether or not more cops equal more safety, that correlation has never been made. Mm Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to get to the the public or the political education part of it in a minute. But I think what's fascinating is the most unsafe neighborhoods have all of the resources that the public sector is giving to them allocated toward the police and the prison system. And so when all of the resources, uh, all of the resources that are being put into your community are being put into it to police it. it's hard to it's hard to think about safety, and you know I think that one of the other differences between a wealthy community uh, and a community where all the resources are being diverted into policing is that in the wealthy community, um, the police may not prevent crime, but they do actually try to solve the crime um, when it happens. Whereas yeah. in the over policed and the over policed you know black working black and brown working class neighborhoods, they're neither preventing the crimes nor solving the crimes. Right, and they, sometimes they're not showing up after the. crime. And sometimes they're doing the crimes, right? Right, right. Right. You know, so it's this whole spectrum of uselessness with regard to actually creating a safe environment for the people who live in the community. And it's really, it's, it's got to be the exercise of anyone who wants to truly educate and be part of a community that does not rely on armed people who show up and escalate a situation to make it worse. Um, you know, it, it, it's necessary for people to understand that you have to find a better way 
than that, right? Every every situation does not require bringing someone in with a, you know, a costume and a gun. Because any other place of showing someone shows up at your door in a costume and a gun, that's not creating safety. Right. <laughs> right. And with the last couple, 15 minutes or so we have, I want to tilt in that direction um, and, and talk about the role that the political education plays in building the power uh, in order to be able to confront these projects, but also the larger police state and to start to build these new institutions of community safety. Right. So, yeah, what what is you do a regular show on Black Power Media. You go on a lot of webinars. You talk about this wherever you can. What role do you see political education playing in building that movement? Um, I think the biggest role it can play is to break that idea that police is about creating safety, that it's about public safety, that it's about serving and protecting, that, you know, it's it's just about making sure that you feel safe when you're walking down the street because policing has nothing to do with any of that. Um, you know, and it's, I think it's just, from what I said before, it's really, if you think about the span of your life and how many movies, TV shows, commercials, D.A.R.E. if you grew, you know, I'm, I don't, I can't remember if I'm older than you or not, you know, the D.A.R.E. program. I remember D.A.R.E. You know, all, all of these things, which all taught you that police were the good guys, right? They're the ones who show up and, and they chase the bad guy away or, you know, they, you get hurt and they do the, they do the real research and they figure out who hurt you. Like, this is what we've all been taught and propagandized to believe for decades. Right. Um, and it's gotten to a point I'm so bad now with it that I can't even enjoy shows like that anymore right like the minute the minute it starts turned into like oh the cop's gonna solve the crime I'm like oh i can't watch this anymore <laughs> I, just, I, can't. I can't even enjoy it um but even just the you know just the idea that that's what they do it is just not what they do and it's important that we break that mythology that we break that that screen that we clear away the smoke and break all the mirrors and stop the propaganda and, you know, and really have these wider conversations about why what people think about policing and what they believe about policing and what they perceive to be what police officers do is not an accurate or truthful reflection of the reality of the situation. I think that's a really good way to put it. And, and um, let's talk about the way the role that Black Power Media plays in that project of political education. So um, for those that don't know, can you explain what Black Power Media is and why you think it's important and powerful in this uh, as part of this movement? And I hope I do it justice. I'm I'm kind of new over there on the BPM streets. So, <laughs> so Black Power Media is a media outlet that is a conglomerate of multiple um, journalists, media experts, uh, historical expert, experts. Um, it, it really is a, a, a wide range of people who come to the platform and present information on a variety of issues, topics, stories, reflections, books, everything as it relates to um, Black liberation, right? Because in the end, that's really what, what it's about. It's trying to ascertain how do we give the audience the power that is necessary in order for us to actually fight for our freedom and liberation. 
um, like I said, I'm, I'm relatively new to actually being on screen at BPM. Um, they just celebrated their third year, the third anniversary. So they've been, you know, they've been out for, for three years and, and really providing a lot of great information. Um, and I feel like the biggest role is to, to provide a space where people can go and watch different things that are going to teach them something, help them, you know, learn about what organizer do, organizers are doing, help them to kind of peel back the facade of the propaganda of what media tells, right? Like they, the remix morning show and a lot of times like Dr. Ball will do this, they'll like pull up an article and say, well, here's why this article is complete nonsense, right? Like, look at the wording on this thing. Um, so that's, that's what people can expect from BPM. I, I, you know, I really, I, sometimes I, I want to say I'm like surprised that they don't have more of a following, that they don't have more subscribers. And then I remember that if you are really seeking to give people the truth, there's no marketing to that, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like marketing the truth is a rough, it's a rough, rough road. Yeah, but it, it is an essential road to build those institutions between the now and the future that help us get to that sort of future of abolition, future of black sovereignty and black uh, independence over their own communities. Uh, and what I really have, have loved about watching your show and other shows on Black Power Media is exactly what you say. It's voices that you're not hearing in the rest of the media that are thoughtful, um, grounded in grounded in the work, grounded in doing the day-to-day -day work, but also grounded in the thought and the theory and the abstraction that goes behind that work in a way that connects it and starts to give a vision of what is possible, you know, mm -hmm. what is happening now, but also what is possible in ways that it is different. And that's where I want to go with this last question I have. And I know we're getting close to time, but um, I, I think if we go a couple of minutes over, we'll be okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a utopian future, not as an escape from a present, but a, or in a, as an evasion of the work of building these new institutions, but as sort of as a North Star to guide our work toward the world that we want to live in. Um, and so this summer, I came up to an event where you screened Matthew Solomon's Reimagining Safety. Uh, can you talk about that movie, why you're hosting events on it, and sort of a broader vision of what abolition starts to look like? Um, once we get past the propaganda of the police state. Right. So, so funny story. I, when you came up and we watched, that was also my first time seeing the movie. I had not seen it before I actually did the screening. Um, but I was intrigued enough after listening to Matthew talk about his like history and how he kind of got to this space of creating the documentary and the people that he interviewed, the fact that he had someone who had been a trained police officer who was who was one of the people that he talked to in his documentary, um, that he talked to um, someone from an area where they were able to like actually show why spending money in this way didn't make sense, right? Um, and when I watched it, the thing that I pulled from that documentary that I think I hold with me and I think of every time I talk about it or, you know, I've now seen it probably four or five times since that screening is this idea that we have been conditioned to dial 911 or to call the police for everything. And why do we have to be such shitty neighbors? 
right? Like, why do we have to call 911 if someone's having a, a mental health breakdown? Why do we have to call 911 if the kids are making too much noise in the backyard? Why do we have to call 911 if your neighbor's door seems to be unlocked and open, right? Like, people bring in again and you know i I think i'm gonna keep calling them this these people in costumes with guns right into all these scenarios where in any other situation a person in a costume and a gun with a gun would not be welcomed right and so i feel like there's a benefit to really having this this conversation within communities about why do we feel the need to bring somebody in wearing a costume and holding a gun? And is there something better that we can do in place of doing that, that maybe would allow for someone to survive or survive a situation where they wouldn't when that person shows up with a gun, right? So, I mean, taking that away from it was really big for me. Um, and this idea that we as communities, because that's what you know, like I said, I live in a suburb and that's what it's like here, right? Like the alarm is going off next door and it's only after all the neighbors are outside and whoever has the key goes into the house because, it, you know, they're, they're away and the alarm's going off by mistake and whoever the neighbor who has the key is goes in and can't find the car key and, you know, and they don't want to break the car window to get the car alarm to stop going that they actually call 911. Like it takes two hours for someone to call a police and it's like the last ditch effort. Right. Right. It's the last thing you do on the list, not the first thing you do on the list. Yeah. And, and, and that's a big differential. You know, when, when a couple of weeks ago, we were having a conversation. I had a conversation with Dave on Love about uh, juvenile crime and the tough on crime approach that the, mm-hmm. that the, um, the governor is taking. And mm-hmm. it was the same thing. It was the governor wants to make the juvenile justice system the first stop on the pathway to solving the problem as opposed to the last stop on the pathway to solving the problem. Uh, And similarly in policing, it seems like too often police are the first response that people have um, to address problems instead of the last response. And, you know, even that sort of simple move of simple conceptual move of saying, um, let's make this the last response uh, instead of the first response helps to deflect to defeat that propaganda and then when folks understand well i don't actually know what to do if my neighbor's alarm is going off i think it forces them to then be able to go and say hey neighbor what do i do if your alarm goes off um and and, you know and I mean, look, that's not going to solve all problems, uh, right? We still have a world in which today, in the current political order, police have created conditions for a lot of violence. And there's still going to be some times when uh, the police are the actor today um, that intervenes, right? Like that, that is, that is going to happen. But the, the, to move to a future where that doesn't happen, we need to stop having them intervene in every single situation mm-hmm. um, and stop having them be the course of first resort and stop pouring all the public resources into that as if that is the way to ensure safety. Because right. and, and the other way to ensure safety is to pour resources into the community, right? right. If you live in a place and not just, not just general resources, like I was about to start talking about things like 
if you have access to clean water and you have access to food and you have somewhere to sleep and, you know, you, you feel like, you know, you don't have to do anything extreme to make those previous things happen. Right. Right. Um, that's a whole different story, but also if you can go to school and have books and access to the internet and be able to have a conversation where, you know, critical thinking and thinking outside the box is welcomed, right? If you're able to, within your own community, go, you know, run off your energy because, you know, there's a path that you can run on when you're frustrated, right? And so that prevents you from like snapping at somebody who's getting on your nerves in your house, right? Like there are all these things that so many communities are denied, mm -hmm. right? And those are the things that actually allow for situations to not be created where you then have to call in the person wearing the costume and holding a gun, right? right? So, you know, it all falls into the same thing. And this thing about like knowing your neighbors and talking to your neighbors and all this, that's also part of the propaganda because we're all being systematically convinced that our neighbors are bad guys, right? Like your neighbor person be. who could really cause you harm, right? right? Like put the ring on your front door. So anybody who walks past your house gets caught on camera, right? Like, like it's this, 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 this idea that we constantly have to be in fear of holding on to this thing that we think we own because we don't want someone else to take it from us. And we don't realize that there's, I don't even know, 400 whatever trillion dollars of resources that are held by 1% of the population. And perhaps if instead of worrying about my neighbor picking up my Amazon package when I'm not home, right? Because, you know, they do that because they're everybody in the neighborhood could, you can't leave anything on your porch. You just never know. You recognize that the, the reason you're fighting so hard for this thing is because you spend every day trapped in this, this system on this spinning wheel of trying to make sure that you can pay for the things. And you feel that way because all of the stuff is owned by like 1% of people, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a massive misdistribution of the resources and the wealth. And it, you know, it's just, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to get people to understand, right? It's really, really hard. Dr. Ball came to New Jersey and talked to some of my students and then he talked to the community and, you know, the conversation was really about like economics and capitalism and, you know, what is this black buying power and, you know, all these things. And, and in every conversation, I realize how many people don't understand that they've been duped into believing that they have to really fight to get their own, to get their piece of the pie. When the reason that they have to do it is because they're a bunch of greedy assholes who are keeping everything, <laughs> right? right? If we didn't allow the greedy assholes to keep everything, everybody would have what they needed and we wouldn't have to feel so burdened by this idea that we have to take and we have to get and we have to hold on and we have to claw. Like, it, you know, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, and you know, it, it is. And last week I had a really good conversation with Devon Love about redistribution of both power and uh, both wealth and political power. Mm -hmm. um, so like if, if 
politicians in Annapolis or in Washington, D.C. are deciding that what West Baltimore needs is a $330 million police training facility, that's because they have control over those resources and not the community having control right. over those resources. And if the right. community has the political power to decide where that $330 million goes, it's probably not going into a new police training facility. Right. Um, at least all of it. A lot of it is probably going to the things that you talk about, like having recreation within the community and having libraries within the community and having grocery stores and things uh, that make the community healthier so that it doesn't feel like everybody needs to hustle for the small amount of resources that there are. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that, um, I think this redistribution aspect of it is really important because when we think about that, those price tags, billions of dollars going into these police training facilities and the people who are being policed have very little say over where that money goes. They may get to vote on a bond or they may get to elect the people who allocate it. But at the end of the day, they're they are as far away from those billions of dollars as they are from the decisions about who gets those billions of dollars. Yep. You know, and uh, the... The problem can't be solved by not building police institutions. The problem has to be solved by thinking about a, a political future where the wealth and the power are distributed differently. That's, yep, that's right. Yep. So, all right, Renee, we are getting close to time here. Is there anything you want to leave with? Uh, final thoughts or how people can find you? Um, I am probably easiest to find right there on the Twitter. <laughs> Our Johnson at 815. Or on Saturdays, where Jared is so kind to share his space with me for Saturday with Renee. Um, that shows every Saturday at 11. We try to go live every now and again. We will have to pre-record. Andy will be on with us on Saturday. Very much looking forward to that conversation. Um, and I try to, you know, I try to post anything that I have going. That National Lawyers Guild webinar was really it was a big deal for me, right? Like I, for, for the National Lawyers Guild to call me and say, can you help with this webinar? I was truly like, wait, me, <laughs> right? And, and it's opened, it's, it's opened some doors to some people who are actual resources. You know, they're actual researchers. They actually know how to find information. And I'm really hoping to be able to expand on on what I started with people who who were able to help me do that so that we can really lay out some of these things and some of, you know, some of this information that is just really being held tight because they don't want you to know how many of these resources they're putting in towards something that's not going to be beneficial to the material conditions of the community members. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. We watched that National Lawyers Guild webinar, and I thought it was great. And I thought that uh, your research was really spectacular. And I was excited to have you come on here to talk about it. I'm also excited to see you on Saturday. Um, and we're going to talk about a different set of topics, but similar <laughs> similar to the vein we were getting to at the end about who has the power uh, and how people can uh, exert political power and how uh both parties are trying to take and corporations are trying to take that away. So, so. all right, Renee, well, thank, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to seeing you on Saturday again. Um, and we'll switch roles that time. Um, <laughs> um, and then I will put a bunch of links into the resources. And I'll let you know when this comes out, but thank you so much for this time tonight. I really appreciated it. Uh, and it was a great show. So thank you. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um,
All right. Well, thank you very much to Renee for coming on tonight. We'll get the show out soon. Uh, in addition to being able to find the show on YouTube, you can now find it on Spotify, Podbean, Audible, and Apple uh, and Apple Podcasts. And we'll make sure that uh, it gets out to all of those places very soon. And we'll put the resources that Renee talked about into the chat. Uh, and we have another set of great shows coming up as we get into March. So thank you very much and have a good night. Thank you.